0: I have astrally projected myself into the studio. Hello friends, it's LML and welcome to part three of Odin Origins. Today we're going to discuss the Norse origins of skin changing and green seeing, which will lead naturally into a discussion of Jon Snow as the embodiment of Odin's battle fury. These three Odin Origins videos are really just one big video that I snip snip snipped into three parts, so please, by all means, and I really mean this, you'll have a much better experience if you watch these in order. Please check out part one and two if you haven't already. They're linked in the description below. We'll definitely be doing more Norse mythology, A Song of Ice and Fire videos in the future, but this here is my Odin Origins trilogy, and like I said, it's all written as one script, so I hope you'll enjoy watching it as much as I did making it, and I definitely had a lot of fun making this one. So let me know what you think in the comments below, and of course, Just check and make sure real quick that you're subscribed to the channel with a little red button below. And click that notification bell. Make sure it's set to all notifications so you never miss a video or a live stream. Again, just to head off any comments about my non-historically accurate Viking hat. No, the real Vikings did not wear horned helms. It's a pop culture misconception. However, I'm also a Minnesota Vikings fan, so I get to wear the silly hat. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy part three of and Origins. All right, well now that we have some of the harder, more esoteric stuff under our belt, now that we're accomplished tree wizards, let's pull some lower hanging fruit from the Norse World Tree and talk about skin changing. Basically everything about skin changer magic comes from Norse mythology, and most of it is tied directly to Odin. That figures, right? Green seeing turns out to be largely adapted from the mythology of Odin and Yggdrasil, and skin changing and green seeing are pretty much the same magic. Green Seers are essentially just skin changing the weirwood trees on a basic level. So, first off, the two primary animals associated with skin changing and northern culture in general are, of course, wolves and ravens. Those are Odin's pets, wolves and ravens. He has two wolves, Geri and Freki, whose names mean ravenous one or greedy one. They both mean uh, the same thing, essentially. And he has two ravens, Hugin and Munin, whose names mean thought and memory, or mind, respectively. We'll talk about the Ravens first. Hugin and Munin go out at dawn each morning to gather news from the world, which they can then bring back to Odin because he gave them the ability to talk. How convenient. Odin is called the Raven God, and the Ravens are described as perching on his shoulders, just like a skin changer or Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And as anyone knows, that Lord Commander Raven is, of course, Nothing more than a tool of blood raven. That's right, if you've ever read any good blood raven theory, you know that it begins with the assumption that he is inhabiting Mormont's raven, both to spy on the events and goings on and occasionally to dispense timely wisdom, such as when it told John to burn the white in Mormont's chamber, burn, the raven called, burn, burn, burn. Or when it burst forth from the vote kettle and told the Night's Watch who to vote for for Lord Commander. That was a neat trick. Also, gotta love that time when the raven <laughs> dabbled in a little bit of comparative mythology and identified John as a corn king. That one was especially helpful to me, so thanks, Blood Raven in disguise. Blood Raven theories aside, we do know that ravens are a very popular animal for skin changers to use, and that they do indeed use them to spy and collect information. We also know that the tradition of the Maesters using ravens to send written messages is actually a lower, fallen form of something that the First Men did in the Age of Heroes. And this next quote is from the Mouths of the Maesters, whose consensus views make up the world of ice and fire, essentially. Though considered disreputable in this our present day, a fragment of Septun Barth's unnatural history has proved a source of controversy in the halls of the Citadel claiming to have consulted with texts said to be preserved at Castle Black, Septon Barth put forth that the children of the forest could speak with ravens and could make them repeat their words. According to Barth, this higher mystery was taught to the first men by the children so that ravens could spread messages at a great distance. It was passed in degraded form down to the maesters today, who no longer know how to speak to the birds. That's pretty cool, right? And now we know what this is all about, and why George decided to swap ravens in for carrier pigeons. Martin is essentially having a grand old time once again, riffing on the idea of odin having ravens who gather information and speak to him, especially when we see Bloodraven and Bran, the Ovenic green greenseers, using ravens as spies and messengers. And because I can't resist, I'll just... Make a quick attempt to interpret the deeper shamanic metaphor of Odin's ravens here. Well, I would say that because the names of Hugin and Munin translate to thought and memory, mind, I believe we can basically see Odin's ravens as his thoughts and his mind projecting out through the cosmos, shamanic astral travel, in other words, which is what is pretty much at the heart of all of Odin's various symbols and metaphors. Don't even get me started on Sleipnir, the best of astral projection horses. I did an entire two-hour podcast on Sleipnir-based astral projection horse-riding symbolism in A Song of Ice and Fire, which is in the Weirwood Compendium series, and it's called Shamanic Thunder Horse. But just think about the basic idea of Odin's mind and thoughts projecting outward and then manifesting as ravens. What does that sound like? Blood Raven, right? Sending his mind out through Weirwood astral projection and taking the form of a three-eyed crow. It's pretty much the same exact idea. As for Getty and Freki, the ravenous wolves, well, if Hugin and Munin represent Odin's thoughts and mind, the wolves are kind of like his fury and strength personified. Odin feeds the wolves from his very own table, for Odin is sustained purely by wine and occasionally the meat of poetry. Getty and Freki are said to roam the battlefields, greedy for the corpses of those fallen in battle, as do Hugin and Munin, by the way, because. Odin is the lord of the dead, you see, and so his animals are basically all scavengers and eaters of the dead. Geri and Freki are also used as generic terms for wolves, and Geri's morsel is even a Norse expression or kenning for carrion. Then we have the word warg. Many of you may recall hearing that word in Lord of the Rings, too. Tolkien used it to refer to the evil wolves, which could be ridden into battle by the orcs. And in A Song of Ice and Fire, of course, a warg is simply a skin-changer of wolves. Tolkien got the word from Old Norse, though, along with much else in Lord of the Rings. Warg is the anglicized form of the Old Norse word vargr, which means wolf. Vargr sounds like a growl, the word, doesn't it? Vargr. It couldn't refer to any wolf, but it was used especially for the greatest wolves, such as Fenrir, or the wolves who chase and eventually swallow the sun and moon, Skoll and Hati. Martin makes use of the Skorl and Hatti symbolism with some of his ideas about the sun and moon being hidden or harmed during the Long Night, but that's really a topic for another video. Call that one The Norse Origins of Azor High and the Long Night, and I'm leaning towards making it pretty soon, actually. But for now, let's stick with warging and Odin before we go all celestial apocalypse here. So, along the lines of Tolkien's wargs, which could be ridden, there are a few figures in Norse myth who ride on the backs of wolves. But far more important for us is the fact that Odin himself is a kind of shapeshifter who can take the form of a wolf, or a snake, or a fish, or even another person. He does this by falling into an ecstatic trance and sending his spirit out of his body, so more astral projection in other words. In A Song of Ice and Fire, the skin changer sends their spirit out of their body and into that of a living animal, while Odin's spirit simply manifests as an animal or another person, so there's a slight difference. But it's one of form and not substance, if you'll pardon the astral projection insubstantiality pun. Both of them are falling into trances and becoming animals through astral projection, so It's not hard to see that skinchanger lore is in fact largely based on, or adapted from, if you want to say, Norse mythology. Especially when we take into account how skinchangers prefer wolves and ravens, Odin's pets, and how thoroughly the entire greenseer-weirwood relationship is based on Odin and Yggdrasil. There's yet another layer to this, which has to do with shamanic madness and viking warriors running around naked save for the skins of wolves and bears. And isn't that the sort of thing we'd like to talk about here? These warriors were called Berzerkir, or berserkers if they were associated with bears. Berzerkir means bear shirt, and shout out to Brady Bjorn Bearshirt, old school patron of mine. And the ones who identified with wolves were called Ulfhednar, which means wolf hides. These warriors were descended of even older traditions of wolf warrior and bear warrior cults among the Germanic peoples and their ancestors, and they were defined by their ability to enter states of shamanic ecstasy, which in turn allowed these warriors to channel the fury and strength of their associated animals. This madness or fury or frenzy was called Oðr, which yes that's the root of the word Odin. Odin is first and foremost associated with this shamanic ecstasy or shamanic madness, and it's considered to be both a source of poetic inspiration and battle fury, as confusing as that may sound at first. The Vikings saw excellence in battle as a kind of poetry in motion, I guess you could say, but the real link here is an altered state of consciousness brought on by fasting, exposure, drumming, dancing and chanting, and who knows what other techniques, drugs, they were using drugs, that may have been lost to history. Because of this ability to channel animal-like other the Berserkir and Ulvhednar were called Odin's men. So to become a Berserkir or Ulvhednar, one had to endure grueling initiation rituals, going out to live in the wild like a wolf or bear, essentially, hunting and foraging and stealing to live, living by the code of the wild, in other words. The Ulvhednar and Berserkir were thought of as leaving human society to become part of the forest, and they were thought of as becoming too wild for human society. Only through this process, though, could a man acquire the strength and ferocity of the wolf and bear. Hey there, friends. It's eight weeks post-production beard growth LML buzzing in to say, gosh, the Ulfhednar Hednar and Berserk is going to live in the wild, and by the code of the wild, sure sounds a lot like Jon Snow going to live with the wildlings, doesn't it? And that's where he learns to use his skin changer power, of course. So yeah, that—that's his Ulf Hednar training, if you will. And uh, that's it. That's all I have to say. Back to the video. These most fearsome of warriors then went into battle in the heightened states of ecstasy and battle lust that I described earlier. And wearing only the skins of the bear or the wolf, they were thought to be impervious to pain and. Certainly the overall effect would have been quite terrifying to the foe, I'm thinking. So now we're getting closer to the ancient legends of the Children of the Forest, going into battle with all manner of ferocious animals, such as in the legends of the war for Sea Dragon Point between the Starks and the Warg King, who went into battle with his beasts and greenseers. We actually see a bit of that action with Bran at Queen's Crown as well, where Bran is sitting up in a tower, going into a trance, and then piloting his wolf Summer in the battle below to help his brother John. Vermeer Sixskins is another name to mention here. He goes into a trance and turns into both wolves and bears. A snow bear and three wolves, to be exact. And of course, one of his wolves is called One Eye because it has one eye. That's a definite Odin sighting there. And in general, Norse mythology related to wolves, bears, and ravens is pretty much scattered all over Song of Ice and Fire culture in the north and with the wildlings. In addition to Varamyr's sixkins, Bran, Bloodraven, and the Weirwoods as a whole, we also have Lord Commando Mormont, who's called the Old Bear, and all the related bear symbolism of House Mormont. The wildlings wearing wolf and bear pelts and using their skulls as totems and symbols of strength. Craster in particular has the bear pelt and the bear skull totems. Then there's the Magnar of Then, Othen, Then, and his weirwood staff, which seems to be a very close analog to Odin's ash spear, Gungnir. And there's also the runic writings of the First Men, and probably a few other things which I didn't catch and which you should absolutely add in the comments below the video. And in case you were thinking about the Horn of Jormun and the Norse world serpent Jormungandr, yes, definitely, (laughs) that's definitely a thing. I'm probably going to save that one for the Norse Origins of the Long Night video, however, along with Sutr, the destruction of the Bifrost Bridge, and pretty much everything else that goes down at Ragnarok. Oh, hey there, friends. Post-production LML breaking in here with an additional find concerning Bloodraven and the wolves and ravens of Odin. As you've just seen, Bloodraven is very clearly sending out his thoughts as astral projection ravens. He's skin-changing ravens, and he's naming himself after ravens and having a raven birthmark, but he also does get the wolf association very clearly in this quote that I found from the Mystery Knight. And this is actually Dunk's inner monologue here concerning Bloodraven. How many eyes does Lord Bloodraven have, the real ran? A thousand eyes and one. Some claimed the King's Hand was a student of the dark arts who could change his face, put on the likeness of a one-eyed dog, even turn into a mist. Packs of gaunt gray wolves hunted down his foes, men said, and carrion crows spied for him and whispered secrets in his ear. Most of the tales were only tales Dunk did not doubt, but no one could doubt that Bloodraven had informers everywhere. So there you go, that's the whole Odin package, isn't it? He's turning into a one-eyed animal, he's changing his face in general. Crows are whispering in his ears as the ravens Hugin and Munin whisper news into Odin's ears. And then there's the packs of gaunt, hungry wolves hunting down his foes to complete the picture. If the reader reading this passage for the first time has any familiarity with Odin at all, this pretty much sticks out like a sore thumb, right? So I'm glad I remembered it existed. Now on with the show. And on with the snow. All right, we're going to keep going with our current train of thought about Odin's wolves and ravens. But I find that John Snow, the temporarily dead Lord Commander of the Night's Watch and possible future King of Winter, merits his own section here, as he's got a severe case of creeping Odin symbolism. John didn't lose an eye. But the eagle housing the dead soul of the wildling Orel did absolutely try to rip out one of John's eyes and succeeded in temporarily blinding him, and more importantly, leaving a big fat scar across one of his eyes, which does definitely count as Odin symbolism. More importantly, John is a warg, and since becoming a Lord Commander of the Watch and inheriting Mormont's shoulder raven, he's a warg with both a wolf and a raven for a pet, just like Odin. That's a pretty good start for old Johnny Boy. Now when you consider the fact that Bloodraven was a Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and that the last two Lord Commanders, Jor Mormont and Jon Snow, have the bear and wolf symbolism of Odin's frenzied warriors, kind of starts to seem like the very position of Lord Commander itself is based on Odin mythology. That's probably why it comes with the shoulder raven as a badge of office, I'm thinking. That floppy hat's gotta be around here somewhere. The Night's Watch, of course, has a history of Working with the Green Seers and the Children of the Forest, which goes back to its very inception during the first Long Night, as we've discussed many times. So, kind of figures that the archetype of Lord Commander of the Watch might be cast in the image of Odin. Then I'd actually go further and suggest that the original Commanders of the Watch were probably Skin Changers and Green Seers. Odin himself is actually supposed to lead a great host of the undead at Ragnarok, which is a great parallel to the idea of the Lord Commander leading the men of the Night's Watch in the Wharf of the Dawn, especially because the Night's Watch actually has a ton of death symbolism. And in fact, I have a great theory about that, that the last hero and his first group of 12 dead companions were actually an undead hero and 12 undead companions. A baker's dozen of cold hand style thinking zombies, in other words. Or perhaps barrack-style zombies, if fire magic was used. And then these zombified skin changers, I'm thinking, basically would have been the ideal Night's watchman to journey into the cold dead lands and take on the others. They don't need shelter or food or sleep or warmth or anything like that, so they're pretty much perfect. And we see that with cold hands. He's ideally suited to range the North forever in perpetuity. And if you want to hear more about that, you can find that theory in the first three Sacred Order of Green Zombies videos on my page. Oh, and uh, by the way, Odin's epithet Oh, this is this is going to be a good one, Draugdratan, which means Lord of the Undead, and of course a drauger, Draugr, D R A U G R, same root word there means zombie or white essentially. So Lord of the Undead, that could definitely apply to Knight's King, right? As I said, he seems like some sort of an evil green seer as far as the Knight's King archetype, but it could also apply to the idea of the original Lord Commander of the Watch, leading undead Knights Watchmen. So there you go. I'll also mention that Odin has an unpronounceable title, which means the one who rides forth, as in rides forth in battle. And that puts me in mind of the line about how the Night's Watch rode forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn, which comes from one of Brain's A Clash of Kings chapters. Alright, let's get nuts. Let's get crazy. It's go berserk. And now, having reviewed Jon's chapters recently, I can safely say that Jon has more than a couple of drops of Odin's berserker-like battle fury. A great example of this is found in A Dance with Dragons, when John is battling in the training yard with Iron Emmett, who is, quote, a long, lanky young ranger whose endurance, strength, and swordsmanship were the pride of Eastwatch. John is already a very good swordsman, and he likes to hone his skill against the very best, which is why he likes to train against Emmett. And though it says that John usually gave as good as he got in these training sessions, Today he's struggling a bit due to lack of sleep, brought on by the incredible stress of being the prince that was promised. He was almost ready to lower his blade and call a halt when Emmet fainted low and came in over his shield with a savage forehand slash that caught John on the temple. He staggered, his helm and head both ringing from the force of the blow. For half a heartbeat, the world beyond his isolate was a blur, and then the years were gone, and he was back at Winterfell once more, wearing a quilted leather coat in place of mail and plate. His sword was made of wood, and it was Rob who stood facing him, not Iron Emmet. So John suffers a ringing blow to the head, which then makes the world become a blur and then he falls into a memory of sparring against his brother Rob back at Winterfell. He's gone into some kind of trance, in other words, and noticed that the blow was struck to his temple. So it's a holy trance, friends, it comes from the temple, but it's also one fueled by rage, as we see when the memory from Winterfell proceeds, kinda shoves Jon's face in his bastard status. That morning, he called it first. I'm Lord of Winterfell, he cried, as he had a hundred times before. Only this time, this time, Rob had answered, You can't be the Lord of Winterfell, you're a bastard born. My Lady Mother says you can't ever be the Lord of Winterfell. I thought I had forgotten that. John could taste blood in his mouth from the blow he'd taken. In the end, Halder and Horse had to pull him away from Iron Emmet, one man on either arm. The ranger sat on the ground dazed, his shield half in splinters, the visor of his helm knocked askew, and his sword six yards away. John, enough! Halder was shouting. He's down! You disarmed him! Enough! No. Not enough. Never enough. John let his sword drop. I'm sorry, he muttered. Emmet, are you hurt? Iron Emmet pulled his battered helm off. Was there some part of yield you could not comprehend, Lord Snow? It was said amiably, though. Emmet was an amiable man, and he loved the Song of Swords. Warrior, defend me, he groaned. Now I know how Goran Halfhand must have felt. Wow, John's berserker fury is so formidable that Emmett needs the warrior, a god of the Faith of the Seven, to defend him from it. As you can see, John's fury came on him while he was in this altered state of consciousness, only barely aware of what was happening around him outside of the foe. It's also pretty clear that John's rage noticeably heightens his strength, speed, and skill, because he was getting his ass handed to him and then he goes berserk and all of a sudden knocks Emmet's sword right out of his hands, and would have killed him had it been a real battle. So this really is similar to Odin's berserkir and Ulv Hebnar using altered states to summon battle fury, thereby becoming nearly unstoppable warriors. That same wildness also led the Berserkers to be regarded as a danger to their friends at times, though, just as John is here, which is why the berserkir and Ulv Hebnar were often social outcasts who were viewed with caution, even as allies. They were often the villains of Viking stories as well, and here they end up sounding more like Septon Maribald's broken men. So getting back to John's Berserker rage, or I guess you'd call it Wolf Hednar Rage, since he's a wolf, a wolf skin, a very similar thing happened back in a Game of Thrones when John hears the news of Lord Eddard's having been thrown in the black cells and accused of treason. As this quote picks up, John's friends are being supportive, and they're reassuring him that they don't believe Ned is a traitor, and even offering to go north of the Wall to pray to the Weirwoods at the Grove of Nine with John, if he wants to do that. The Weirwoods were beyond the Wall, yet he knew Sam meant what he said. They are my brothers, he thought, as much as Rob and Bran and Rickon. And then he heard the laughter, sharp and cruel as a whip, and the voice of Sir Alisar Thorne. Not only a bastard, but a traitor's bastard, he was telling the men around him. In the blink of an eye, John had vaulted onto the table, dagger in hand. Pip made a grab for him, but he wrenched his leg away, and then he was sprinting down the table and kicking the bowl from Sir Alicer's hand. Stew went flying everywhere, spattering the brothers. Thorn recoiled. People were shouting, but Jon Snow did not hear them. He lunged at Sir Alicer's face with a dagger, slashing at those cold onyx eyes. But Sam threw himself between them, and before Jon could get around him, Pip was on his back, clinging like a monkey, and Gren was grabbing his arm while Toad wrenched the knife from his fingers. Later, much later, after they had marched him back to his sleeping cell, Mormont came down to see him, raven on his shoulder. I told you not to do anything stupid, boy, the old bear said. Boy? The bird chorused. Mormont shook his head, disgusted. And to think I had high hopes for you. Alright, so we've got the senior bear warrior with a raven, telling his young wolf warrior that he needs to better learn when to unleash his berserker fury, or something like that. And as you can see, John's fury does indeed possess him totally and completely when it comes on. So forgive me for reading the longer quotes here, but I really wanted us to feel John's wrath, which once again blocks out all sound and resistance, just as it did in the fight with Iron Emmett. I mean, shit, John's leaping onto the table with a knife in his hand, intent not on punching Sir Alasar, but of carving up his face like a weirwood tree. And killing Sir Alasar would have been... An unbelievably stupid thing to do, but his fury was such that he acted before any sort of higher order executive function could even get out of bed, essentially. The other main John Hulk smash super strength moment comes when he discovers that three of his men have been killed by the wildling known as the Weeper, who has mounted their heads on spears of ash wood just north of the wall. The whole scene is laced with weirwood and Odin symbolism, and finally we get a real strong and clear reference to Odin's ash wood spear, Gungnir. The spears were eight feet long and made of ash. The one on the left had a slight crook, but the other two were smooth and straight. At the top of each was impaled a severed head. Their beards were full of ice and the falling snow had given them white hoods. Where their eyes had been, only empty sockets remained, black and bloody holes that stared down in silent accusation. While these Night's Watch rangers have certainly been given to Odin in death, right? Their heads are impaled on spears of ashwood, just as Odin was impaled on Yggdrasil by Gungnir, which is made of ash. And of course, their eyes have also been plucked out, just like Odin had one of his eyes plucked out. The rangers have also been given hoods of snow, and Odin often appears as a hooded wanderer, as you've seen in the art today, and he bears the epithet Grimnir, which means hooded or masked one. Even their icy, Hoarfrost-encrusted beards tick off another Odin nickname, which is, again, I'm not gonna pronounce this one, but it means hoary beard or gray beard. Best of all, these aren't just nods or hat tips to Odin, but rather Martin using the Odin symbolism to build a kind of symbolic weirwood totem. Consider, the ashwood spears planted vertically in the ground function as symbols of tree trunks. Ash trees, they would be, like Yggdrasil, and therefore a stand-in for weirwoods, which are of course, based on Yggdrasil, or you could say cousins of Yggdrasil. Weirwoods are, of course, famous for having bloody, carved faces in their trunks that sometimes even weep blood, and the heads mounted on these spear trees also have bloody, carved faces, which weep blood, courtesy of the Weeper. As I discussed in the Green Zombie series, the names of the Rangers— Garth Greyfeather, Harry Hal, and Blackjack Bulwer— all have ties to Green Man and Cernuno's folklore, which implies these dead people turned Weirwood totems as representing dead green seers who have become Weirwood trees. Which is exactly what happens to dead green seers, of course. They become Weirwood trees. And by the way, if you want my very latest cutting edge Garth Green Man research, be sure to check out the video, the underappreciated and underwatched video, Garth the Green Man, which I worked very hard on and sort of slipped under the radar somehow. But yeah, it's got all my best Weirwood stuff in it, so check that out. Okay, so then comes John's rage and Hulk's strength, after Bowen Marsh observes that the ground is half-frozen and that it must have taken the wildlings half the night to drive the spears so deep, it says, John Snow grasped the spear that bore Garth Greyfeather's head and wrenched it violently from the ground. Pull down the other two, he commanded, and four of the crows hurried to obey. Alright, so John really should have had to wrestle and struggle to get that spear out of the frozen ground when it was sunk so deep in hard, frozen earth, right? But instead, he just wrenches it out suddenly and violently, like some sort of overstuffed Marvel superhero. I mean, like, some sort of Norse god. Oh, oh, that's right. Half the Marvel superheroes are based on Norse mythology anyway. That's actually worth mentioning because that would have been where George first encountered Norse myth since he ate up 60s and 70s golden-era Marvel comics as a kid and actually calls them a bigger influence on his work than Tolkien. Tolkien, which also in turn draws heavily from Norse myth. This stuff's pretty hard to get away from. Now overall, this last example isn't quite the red haze of fury that the first two examples were, but there's no doubt that John is silently furious at the deaths of his three men and that that rage is what again enables him to perform an act of super strength like a Berserkir or ulfhednar. Oh, and one final note on Odin's spear Gungnir. It's said to have been made by dwarves from the rays of the sun. So it may be that we're simply supposed to see Lightbringer, a sword referred to as the sun-made steel and drenched in star symbolism, as taking the place of Gungnir, especially since Jon seems destined to wield a flaming sword of one sort or another before this is all finished. He does have that dream of defending the wall with a sword that burns red in his fist after all and, say, doesn't that dream dissolve into a red haze of John Fury? John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. He slew a graybeard and a beardless boy, a giant, a gaunt man with filed teeth, a girl with thick red hair. Too late, he recognized grit. She was gone as quick as she'd appeared. The world dissolved into a red mist. John stabbed and slashed and cut. He hacked down Donald Noy and gutted death Dick followed. Corn halfhand stumbled to his knees, trying in vain to staunch the flow of blood from his neck. I am the Lord of Winterfell! John screamed. It was raw before him now, his hair wet with melting snow. Longclaw took his head off. Then a gnarled hand seized John roughly by the shoulder. He whirled and woke with a raven pecking at his chest. Okay, so that gnarled hand on John's shoulder is probably Bloodraven's presence in the dream. And overall, I have to agree with Geek's analysis here that it's likely a Bloodraven is influencing or even sending this entire dream to John to help prepare him for the final battle against the others. Unfortunately, John's guilt and hurt seems to leak into the dream as it goes along, which leads to the Red Mist of Rage, with Bloodraven then presumably pulling the plug and trying to wake Jon with the gnarled, tree-like hand that grabs his shoulder. But hey, at least Jon was using his Ovinic Berserker Fury in battle this time, right? It would, of course, make sense to see this dream eventually come true in some sense, with Jon using his Wolf Rage against a worthy foe, or Ten, on the battlefield, Lightbringer in hand. I guess what I'm saying here is that if Bran is the heir to the tree wizard side of Odin's mythos, then Jon seems to be the heir to the warrior side. I also think this will become even more apparent when Jon comes back from death, just as Odin did. And, of course, dead Jon's spirit is almost certainly currently residing in the body of his wolf, Ghost, until his resurrection. And, due to the fact that Ghost looks like a weirwood tree, is called out as such a couple times, Jon's rebirth through his weirwolf, if you will is essentially a symbolic parallel to the idea of dying and being reborn through the magic of the weirwood tree, which is a very important Song of Ice and Fire concept in general. More to come on that in the Azor Ahai Norse mythology video. And then on top of that, I also think it's possible that actual weirwood magic, in the hands of either Bran or perhaps Bloodraven, could even play a part in Jon's resurrection. And then if his resurrection takes place in the Weirwood Grove of Nine, as Radio Westeros predicted all those years ago, then all the better since Odin hung between life and death for nine full nights, of course. Honestly, this is pretty much my best guess for why Martin chose to put nine weirwoods there in the first place. Nine days is also inside the window of how long I think Jon could be dead and still brought back to life, though he'll be awfully wolfish by this point, which is actually the point. Jon's going to be a wolfman, as I talked about with Quinn from Quinn's Ideas in our Winds of Winter preview episode John the Wolfman. I believe that John's spirit may actually have fully merged with Ghost by this time, and that resurrected John may end up housing both the Wolf and the Man-Spirit inside the undead body. He'll actually be more in touch with that wolfish Ulfhevnar Fury, too, if that's the case, and he'll probably have increased strength and stamina if Cold Hands is any indication of what John could be like. I've also been predicting for a long time now that resurrected John may have white hair and possibly even red eyes, which would make him resemble a. his wolf ghost, who may be inside John. b. a weirwood tree, which would make John a kind of tree warrior, c. pre-weirwood cave lord commander of the Night's Watch Bloodraven, and d. Elric of Melnibiné, who is of course a huge inspiration for Bloodraven, but who in turn is very much inspired by Odin himself. Elric captures more of the Wanderer-Outcast aspect of Odin, as well as the Paddle Fury. If you've ever read any Elric, he kind of almost goes insane when he brings out Stormbringer and starts killing people. So that's very Ulf Hednar, if you will. But I am going to do an entire video about Elric's influence on A Song of Ice and Fire. So let me leave it at that for now. Oh, and a white-haired John would also look more E, Targaryen, because it's, they sometimes have platinum white hair. And finally, F, more like Odin himself. Grow that white beard out if you can, Zombie John. I've even seen it predicted on the internet that John could gain the nickname the White Wolf, since he has a white wolf and may end up sort of assimilating with his white wolf when he's resurrected. And I would actually call this a near certainty, since that's actually a nickname of Elric's as well, the White Wolf. And finally, there's a short-lived and oft-drunken dragon lord named Wolf the White, during the Dance of the Dragons, who is most likely a name intended as a nod to the battle-drunk Ulf Hednar, and the idea of a dragon lord, who is also a white wolf warrior, which would be Jon, by the way. There's also a good chance, in my opinion, that, like the TV show version of events, Jon will be named as King in the North, or better yet, King of Winter, when he leads the forces of humanity in battle against the others, as he's very clearly destined to do. I think we should consider King in the North King of Winter and Lord of Winterfell to basically all be the same archetype. And that archetype is one of a wolf king who symbolically rules over the lands of the dead. The frozen north qualifies as a land of the dead and more importantly, the crypts of Winterfell. So wargs, wolf warriors, praying to shamanic trees, ruling over the dead, all of this is Othin talk. And the crown of the King of Winter actually has more Othin talk too. That is to say, runes. The ancient crown of the Kings of Winter had been lost three centuries ago, yielded up to Aegon the Conqueror when Torrhen Stark knelt in submission. What Aegon had done with it, no man could say. Lord Hoster-Smith had done his work well, and Rob's crown looked much as the other was said to have looked in the tales of the Stark kings of old, an open circlet of hammered bronze incised with the runes of the First Men, surmounted by nine black iron spikes wrought in the shape of long swords. Once again, I see the number nine here, and think of Odin's Nine Nights on Yggdrasil, especially since I've already been thinking of the King of Winter's crown as a parallel to the circular Weirwood Grove of Nine, where the Weirwood trees are written as being crowned with a head of dark red leaves. John even rings the grove of white trees with black brothers bearing steel swords in one scene, creating the exact image of a King of Winter black sword crown, sort of overlaid on the circular Weirwood Grove. Check out Weirwood Compendium in a Grove of Ash for more on that, and the Weirwood Compendium as a whole for more Odin symbolism, and to see how some of this Odin stuff applies to Azor Ahai. One thing that I do have time to mention while we're talking about swords is that the very idea of Valyrian steel, a magical, inexplicably advanced, unbreakable type of steel, may have been inspired by the Viking Ulfbert swords, which were made between 900 CE and 1100 CE, the steel of which was of a quality equal to high quality modern steel, but a thousand years too early. Even better, the Vikings directly associated their swords with snakes and dragons. They called them battle snakes and wound snakes because they sort of leap out and bite in the middle of battle, right? And they even engraved snakes into the blades and hilts of their swords. Now, these Ulfbert swords weren't magic, but they would have seemed almost magic, being nearly unbreakable and far superior to everything else that they came up against. Clearly, this could be part of the inspiration for Valerian steel, it seems to me. We might even notice with our sharp little eyes that John's Valerian steel sword, Longclaw, went from bearing a bear on its pommel when it belonged to House Mormont to bearing a wolf on the pommel now that it belongs to John. So from Berserker sword to Ulf sword, it would seem. Oh yes, and the Norse word for sword? That would be brandr. B-R-A-N-D-R. The same root word as burning brand. That A is very close to brand's name, obviously, and B means that the Norse word for sword encompasses the concepts of burning brands and flashing steel swords. Or said another way, flaming swords. And if you want my full exploration on the ramifications of Bran's name being similar to Burning Brand or Flaming Sword, check out weirdward Compendium 2 A Burning Brandon. So, just to sum up on John, he seems to be gradually accumulating the symbolism and accoutrement of the Allfather, Odin. And by the time he's ready to take on the Others, he's going to be pretty easily recognizable as the battle incarnation of Odin. He'll be working in tandem with his brother Bran, the incarnation of the shamanic tree wizard side of Odin, and they'll both have all the Norse-inspired magic of the Green Seers at their disposal. And in case you're wondering, yes, R plus L equals J does technically make Bran and Jon cousins, but they were raised as brothers, and think of one another as brothers, so... Bran and Jon will also have more than a little help from their wolf sister Arya, who, by the way, looks an awful lot like a Valkyrie, as the one and only Sweet Sunray demonstrated in her excellent essay, The Valkyrie of the Faceless Men, which you can find linked in the description of the video. The Valkyries wore armor and were exclusively female, and they were associated with Odin, just as the Berserkir and Ulf Hednar were. Valkyrie means chooser of the slain, and the Valkyries did indeed wander battlefields and choose which fallen warriors were worthy of going to Valhalla to eventually fight in Odin's undead army at Ragnarok. You can see the parallel to the idea of Arya as a faceless man assassin quite readily, right? Since she's literally choosing people to die. Although there is, of course, a lot more to it than that, so do check out Sweet Sunray's essay, linked in the description. And when you consider that Arya, very like Jon, may also have more than a little bit of pent-up rage inside of her, which is... Likely to find release in the form of her ravenous wolf pack, absolutely ripping shit up when she returns to Westeros. Arya may actually be more like a cross of a Valkyrie and a Ulfhebnar warrior. She does have the wolf blood, after all. And you can check out what I had to say about foreshadowing for Arya leading Nymeria's wolf pack in the video called King Bran I, Greenseer Kings of Ancient Westeros. As I mentioned a moment ago, Grimnir means hooded one or masked one. So we might even regard Arya's adoption of the faceless man's ability to use the skinned faces of dead people as illusion masks, as making her an avatar for that masked wanderer side of Odin's personality, to sort of complement Bran and Jon as manifestations of Odin's tree wizard and warrior sides. And the wildling warrior princess, if you will, in quotes, Val, It's probably also a Valkyrie figure with her weirwood brooch, fearlessness in wandering the battlefield or the haunted forest, and her potential to play an even bigger role in the Winds of Winter, so keep an eye on her too. I did already catch her riding a one-eyed mule when she left Castle Black to go find the remnants of the wildling army. So she's been marked by the Allfather and is under his watchful eye, if you will. I actually talked quite a bit about Jon and Val as a symbolic knight's king and queen pairing in the video called Origins of the Others Night's Queen, for all you Val fans out there, and I certainly hope that's everybody. And finally, I'll just mention that Bloodraven gets a little bit of that chooser of the slain action, too, at the very end of the mystery night. When Dunk and Egg go to meet Bloodraven in the tent at the end of the story, they walk in and he's reading out names of the rebel traitors, and Dunk has a thought. He says, he is marking down the men to die, Dunk realized. So Bloodraven is literally choosing the slain and naming the dead there, sitting in judgment as a lord of death. Hey guys, thanks so much for watching my third Odin Origins video. Just wanted to say, if you're not following me on Instagram, you should definitely do that. I'm David Lightbringer on Instagram. I'm posting music recommendations and occasional mythological based pep talk and all kinds of good media. It's sort of an extra content stream if you like the channel and everything that we've got going on here. So, David Lightbringer on Instagram. And then I also want to say, watch out for the two live streams that will follow this video one about Aria. Going to follow up more on that uh, Valkyrie stuff and, of course, Q&A about Jon Snow to take some of this stuff further. So stay tuned and make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Make sure you leave a comment on the video with your thoughts. And I'll see you again very soon with live streams and videos aplenty. Oh, yes. Hail Odin!